So welcome to another edition of the Mike Oldfield podcast, discography podcast. Um, we're back with um, Platinum, um, very important album for myself and uh, definitely a very um, important album in terms of the um, next uh, years in, in Mike's discography as well. I think it's uh, often been referred to as a transitional album. Not sure I agree with that, but um, it's definitely Mark's a new point of departure, um, lots of changes, also lots of um, still lots of references to the past. I think it's a great album um, to talk about for this episode. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's funny because it's my I would say it's my most listened to album. Really? Yeah. Since, funny because it's since, well, well, since the um, deluxe edition was released, mm -hmm. don't remember when that was 2008, 2009 or something. 12, I thought, but okay. I think it was, I think it was, uh, maybe you're right. I don't, I don't know. But anyway, so for the last 10 years yeah. plus, right, I have been uh, listening to this a lot. And in the past four years, like ever since my daughter was born, mm -hmm. we listened to it even more. That's really interesting. Yes. Because it was, it's my most listened to old album as well. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember a friend of mine in Spain telling me a while ago that that was like his gateway yeah. uh, into into you know Mike's work and I agree like it's it's really if you if you and it's the only time first time I thought about that today is actually platinum is definitely where the biggest change happened in his career and then I was wondering okay because he was going from A to B mm -hmm. right so then now then I was question, wondering okay did he ever go back to A really and when and he did he did at some point, like he went back doing Amarok, right? And then he did Tubular Bells 2, which is kind of like mm -hmm. maybe a little bit of a step back into the old way of doing things, but that was with the production team and stuff, so yeah. not really. And then really it was in the, um, the mid-90s, I think it was uh, Tubular Bells 3 and Guitars, where he really went back to working on his own and making all his own decisions and um, using uh, less and less of um, external input. Yeah, because, re because really that's like <clears throat> the biggest, biggest thing uh, in his career, you know, from going forward from 78, from Platinum mm -hmm. or 79 it was released, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that suddenly, you know, he was working with other musicians and, mm -hmm. and that, and even had other musicians contribute parts which are not credited and the, so yes. this is like i say this like making assumptions but i know <laughs> right and it's it's really really interesting to go from being like a total control freak you could say mm -hmm. even though you don't you don't have to kind of like call it that it's not control freak it's like out of necessity he did everything himself right until he then was able and decided to kind of open up to use a different process there's so many um ways to start talking about this album it's it's um it's insane um this is maybe a good way i mean um maybe just very briefly on a personal um level i um i think the reason is why i why i listen to this so much is because it um it caught me right in the middle of a phase where i was already listening to his music and this um i bought this the cd the original cd in um on our way to france this was the last vacation i had with my parents probably and we were on our way to france and i bought it at a petrol station 
um, and they um, I, I hadn't taken a lot of music with me, and um, they had a stand with um, with CDs. Mm-hmm. Um, weirdly enough, and I and I bought it there, and I um, I think it was the perfect uh, music because um, not only my parents were happy that it wasn't the, the usual stuff I would listen to, which was um, a lot of eighties early eighties Klaus Schulze with all these um, atonal and avant garde influences and really weird. Um, mm-hmm. um, computer beats, mm-hmm. and um, so this was. I think it, it was more compatible, as as much as it was still really challenging. And then secondly, um, it's we were always on the move on this vacation. There was a lot of driving, and I think this the, it fits the music, which is also a lot about rhythm um, and, and groove. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it caught me at the right moment, and um, and I I had listened to. I think it was really on Tudor Bells and Hergest Ridge. And it was very different, but still recognizable. So there was an element of confusion, maybe. Um, a lot of people, I think, experienced it when they first heard it um, as fans. If you enter into his world with this album, then there's no problem at all, at all um, I think. But it, there's this movement, there's this change, and it, I don't know, and, and it kept me coming back to it. And, and every time I hear, I hear it, um, I, um, I hear something different in it. I experience it differently. I mean, I, I have my, my issues with it, um, but but that too, in a way, I think makes it more intriguing to me. Um, but yes, as you say, it's, I think um, he he's starting to work with musicians. And I think to a degree, what he said um, about this is that, um, I don't know if he was actually referring to this, but, but I have my assumption is that, um, before he did the therapy, he he basically he um, worked through his issues through the music, and then I think after that he said, "Well, I, I became a different person, and I um, there were a, lo- a lot of the crises I had in my life were gone. So I had to look for crises." And, and I, sort I, of, I, I don't know. I heard uh, some other interview with him actually yesterday, uh-huh. um, in which which was from the Songs of Distant Earth era. Mm-hmm. And he's, he says, um, there he says that he was afraid that he would lose his creativity mm. when he tackles, you know, his, his psychological problems. But actually, it turned out that was not the case. No, it was not the case. He, he, said, he said that he, the, the motivation for why he would make music changed, but his creativity didn't change. I do think that I can, I sort of, this, there's lots of contradictions in the interviews, but I could sort of recognize the fact that with this album, the album came, um, so once he did the therapy, he goes out to tour, he does interviews, he starts working with other musicians, all the things he really did not want to do before. It's, it's a completely different process. So I do see an element of going into uncomfortable territory, um, growing as a person and as a as a musician, I think it's, it's sort of like like flying. You know, he, he his fear of flying. What does he do? Mm-hmm. He he starts learning to to fly solo. Mm-hmm. I think that's so. Um, it shows that he um, he's really the kind of person who will. He 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 want, The book is called Changeling for a reason. I mean. Um, exactly. You know, it's, it doesn't does he doesn't really explain it in the book, right? No, he doesn't. But I think the, <laughs> yeah. that the thing is he. Yeah. Um, he faces his his demons. Mm-hmm. Incorrect. Yeah, that's what you know? he said in that. What he that's said that's that why, interview. like these comments yeah. from from some yeah. of the people around him saying that he should never have done the therapy because the therapy because it 
Um, there was something in him that, that disappeared. I mean, that is so unfair because um, there's so much coming after it. I mean, it's, it really is bullshit. I have to use that word. Um, yeah, I mean, like, so what is special about this album? There are two <clears throat> cover songs on it. Yes. Right? The, last, were, the last song of the first side and the yeah. last song of the second side. And there were more recorded prior to, um, to the album. So there could have been more. There was um, like this... Um, all right now by the by but you know yeah um, yeah was that before i'm not exactly sure as far as i know it was recorded as part leading up to it but um okay I'm the, okay yeah i don't i don't know about this so yeah but you're right there was all right now that was covered like he was a big fan uh, of the song <clears throat> and um yeah but i mean so well here's another thing that i only found out you know again like this last week I saw somebody posting a copy of North Star, the album by Philip Glass. Yes. Right? And so the part four of Platinum is a cover of the section of North Star. Yeah, the opening uh, movement. Yes. Yeah. And and so did you know that that album was actually released on Virgin? Yeah, he, he apparently the story is that he brought, uh, that he told Branson to sign Glass for Virgin. Really? Um, yeah, that's, um, I mean, a lot of from this period is sort of, via via you know you, yeah. someone saying something about what happened mm -hmm. um but yes i heard that um he apparently tried to um he persuaded branson to um to sign him wow i had no idea that that's a big thing that's a big thing yeah that's very big and that was a year that was in 77 i think maybe yes. yeah very 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 close in time there's lots so much happening so, so there you go like that also gives like even more meaning to what we we're saying in the incantations podcast right like it kind of yeah. like puts that into context now as yep. well wow wow that that's that's intense and it's a fantastic album also mm -hmm. um even though i you know the interesting thing to me also is that there were lots of influences in his albums prior to um to platinum um and in the book he explains these and some of them are very um concrete but they're never singled out and suddenly here he gives credit to glass on a piece i mean almost everything that makes the fourth part which makes north star great on platinum is by mike yes i mean yeah. he could have he could have arranged it in a way that that you would never hear that it was originally um a glass piece yeah, you, I mean, if you don't tell people, they don't know. Yeah, and if you if you don't have the vocals, and then you then would you wouldn't left. know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But he wants he wants to give tribute. That is so yeah um, interesting. Yeah, 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 for sure. And and again, like the the uh, cover version of uh, I Got Rhythm, mm -hmm. which is sort of like half speed, but even less than half speed. <laughs> um, it's just it's just incredible it's it's such a moving piece of music um and something that you know he didn't i don't think he ever went back to something like that except for um the last song on the album uh, man on the rocks mm -hmm. which uh, uh i can't even remember the title right now <laughs> but like sort of like a gospel-y kind of uh, I give myself away it's called mm -hmm. that. Yeah. yeah and 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 so to really kind of like just take somebody else's music and interpret it mm -hmm. in a in a in a in a, in a very um, how should I say this like using a magnifying glass yeah 
Sorry, no, no, that's my my watch. Ah, that was your watch. Okay, um, like a magnifying glass. I think that's such a such a cool approach for um, cover, right? And where North Star is sort of like, okay, like here's the structure. It take exactly the same structure, and on, which is a minimal piece. So, mm. right? And then on top, I come, you know, I play like a um, stacked, like I don't know, four part rhythm guitars. Yep. Uh, and bass, and then I compose a melody on top of it. Yep. And uh, I think I, I, I was reminded of this when um, I saw um what's his name? Um, um, the guy from, well, there's a German label called Kanzleramt, and um, the guy running it, um, can't remember the name now, but mm -hmm. he, he had sort of, he came, he has, he's, he was very important for me because he made a music in the 90s, which I sort of dreamed of. So there was mm -hmm. techno, but it was also musical. And there was there were um, harmonies in there without it being this cheap brand of trance. And he said he was going to the clubs in Frankfurt and it was they were playing this incredibly stripped down kind of um, techno. But when he came into the clubs, he instantly could hear the harmonies on top of it. And I imagine it's sort of that. You take a music which is stripped down to it, the bare bones. And then as a musician... Because a lot of this music is made by non-magicians. Of course, Blas was a was a composer, mm -hmm. but um, but I can imagine that he he, he this he hears the he hears the glass music and then he can, his brain can't stop there. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and it's it's so cool because like I think it everything kind of like fits together very well, um, like historically with this record. So he went from doing everything by himself. Yeah, it's not entirely true on incantations. Obviously, he had to have people help him, and the strings, and you know, flute players, stuff like that. But the um, this this utter change, going from the one side to the other side of the of the equation, in a way, using all those session musicians, going to the other side of the planet. Not quite, but to New York to record, mm. um, to have like I, I mean it. There are like five different bass players listed on this on the recording session. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny. There, there are barely five pieces on there. Yeah. You know, if you think about it that way, and Mike is playing some of the bass. I'm sure. So, yeah. so it's kind of interesting to see like that the the whole approach changed. The the musical approach changed. There are these these cover songs. There is um, uh, there there is there there are actual songs on there also. Mm -hmm. um, well, we're going to talk about that later. Like Sally, I'm just a gorilla. The original song that was on the album, yeah. which then became into Wonderland. It's a completely different song. And also, as you say, like this rhythm-based um, uh, concept, which I think is something that. Uh, Again, a lot of people don't get yeah. that that is his swing album. That is yeah. the album where it's it's the triplety album, yeah. right? And so, and this is kind of like very cool for those who are interested in this kind of nerdy stuff. The uh, first sec first part, Airborne, mm -hmm. uh, is really so wacky because it has a sixteenth grid and a triplet grid going on at the same time. And I mentioned that before in some, like yeah. talking about, um, even in, in uh, Jubal Bells, it does that. But here it's like, it's so cool. And like, you know, when you just listen to it, you don't realize it. It's only when you start trying to play it, you realize, 
come on, what's going on? So the, the initial riff, which is a variation of tubular bells, I have to say that. And if you listen closely, yeah. you can even hear the glockenspiel played yeah. in the background. Um, and it goes between A minor and G major, just like the yep. beginning it's of tubular bells, same, same key center even, the beginning. And, um, and then this, 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 this rhythm-based idea, right, which kind of like carries through uh, the, whole, the whole piece. And also he does these things that he did on incantations where he had like cyclic uh, repeatings, uh, repetitions of yeah. motifs. Uh, so where it's like three repeats on top of an eight bar phrase or something. And he does that here as well. If you listen closely, you hear that the, the hi-hat patterns, for example, mm -hmm. they are sometimes six beats long, mm. but it's a four beat a song yeah. in four, right? And stuff like that. And then on the second and the, se the second side, especially um, into Wonderland, it's kind of like a um, almost like a like a 1920s um, show tune. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you agree, but that's no, totally. that's sort of like yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it it's retrofuturistic, sort of, um, because it has it is, it is recreating it with synths, but it has a, a very nostalgic. Exactly. Yeah. About it. yeah, and the vocals, the way the vocals are arranged, and uh, it's just incredible. And it's just to sort of make that happen as the artist, I think that's really where he went with this yeah. with this album. So going from just playing the instrument, he really went to, and let me, you know, if I'm phrasing this uh, carefully, he went to playing the players. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if it's if it was conscious or like whatever, it doesn't matter how, but it kind of happened. Right, that this this music came together, and like in uh, in um, into Wonderland, the uh, beautiful uh, solo in the middle, the what sounds like a like a like a flute yeah. synth yeah. A solo. Actually, the first half of it is actually composed because if you listen closely, you hear the guitar playing the exact same thing, mm. but sort of like in a rhythm guitar uh, part there, you hear the melody of the flute, and now it. It's funny because he did something like that on incantations, similar things. But here, I think that that very part even is probably not him playing guitar, but it's Nico Ramson playing guitar. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was going to talk to you because that is um, what you say is, is exactly what my feeling about this is. Um, if you watch the live clips, and there are many live clips from from uh, from the from 1979 until 1983 or 1984, where he yeah. plays these pieces. Yeah. Um, and the, um, and the guitar solo pieces, he usually does not play them. It's actually one, someone else in the band playing them. <laughs> he's usually playing either rhythm guitar yeah. or bass. Mm -hmm. yes. Towards the, the mid-80s, he's playing the bass more. Mm -hmm. So uh, my impression is, is that really he sees the music as emanating from the rhythm. And he sees the rhythm as if the rhythm isn't right, then the music doesn't work. So he has to take care of the rhythm. And he trusts the musicians to be able to play the guitar. I mean, the the rhythm, of, of, you know, it's so obvious. I think we talked about that as well already. Is that exactly if you watch the live performances and you like you see him getting like a sour face, usually happens mm -hmm. not when there is a wrong note, but it happens when the tempo isn't right. Mm -hmm. You know that that's that's sort of like you can really see that that he knows how important that is for his music the rhythm the timing of things right uh yeah you're absolutely right and and you know you said like yeah the music is coming from the rhythm but also like from that point on it's coming from the player 
yes. so so and so so it, it this is so cool so like going from like the total hermit kind of thing to okay like i want i i'm utilizing in a positive way utilizing my friends um and like the way that it worked like this is also kind of interesting to know a lot of the people he worked with he met in in you know in a regular context like in a pub or you know he saw them play with other bands and then started talking with them or even somebody who was working at a studio and then uh, i because i recently heard an interview uh, or um, a talk that phil beer gave phil beer was on the exposed mm -hmm. uh tour where they basically got you know they got to know each other and phil was a technician yeah right and so it's it's kind of interesting like that that once you open up to have like um other people being part of your world and creating you you come up with uh like these these really really particular um results right and and this is something um i do have to say so, sorry to be us the when people say that the first four albums are the the greatest which i kind of agree right but going back to what he says calling his book changeling right what happens is that from that top point on from going from incantation to platinum and continuing through at, le at least 15 years each album is unique and i say this like you always recognize it's old field mm -hmm. you do but if you like if uh, you know analyze it on a musical level it's always something completely different like suddenly using a musical mode that he's never used before right which happens on on um on five miles out for example on that record right like using a chord he's never used before like there are no dominant seventh chords in in like 99.9 percent .9 of his music for example right so like so and he always kind of like keeps a little door open by not you know by not using something to actually use it later on mm -hmm. and this is also yes. kind of like happening here so what what would you say what are the influences here on this album so i would say like in addition to like we already talked about the disco music influence on incantations yes and this continues here yes then um, the swing thing that i said uh yeah. charleston like, like the part three is called charleston Yes. Um, minimal, minimal music. music. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm going to discount Woodhenge. I think you could say um, sort of there was um, this this proto-ambient sort of thing. But I, don't, I think Woodhenge really comes from somewhere else. And, uh, well, we know that it's from like 76 or yeah, something. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, Punkadiddle, I don't I don't think punk... I, I don't know. Um, it's not a punk it's not a punk piece no. but it's it's a it's a statement about punk music in a way i find it hard to um um to really single out the the references per se because um i think if the, the live performances they have this feeling of jazz rock there's mm -hmm. this and, and he's called it referred to it as jazz rock i just don't think that jazz uh nor jazz rock in any way were an influence on this i don't think no so. no no it's just because the band that he used was a jazz rock band which was mm -hmm. pierre Lance gone so and that's how yeah. how that influenced and he I mean, he liked that music and we should not forget and i actually did forget mentioning that uh, when we talked about incantations that uh he worked with uh, like actually his sister and and mike worked with 
Pekapochila on the, uh, yeah. um, whatever it's called, because there's so many titles to that album. Um, incredible album. And um, the solo Mike plays on the title track has the incantations mm-hmm. uh, elements in it. Um, and it's a jazz, kind of what you would call jazz rock album, but a European jazz rock album. Yeah. So that's why I I don't I I kind of agree it's kind of like part of the of the mix of styles or approaches on this record, but it really only comes through in a short section. Like I think yeah. it's like maybe the second the second half of the title track that is the most jazz rock in terms of chords and stuff. Like it's really yeah. uh, and I mean the funny thing is and like the that very tune, the second half of the t- title tune, is something that on the Incantations box that is one of the bonus tracks that's called Piano Improvisation. Mm-hmm. Right, so there you see, okay, like on the record, it's kind of like arranged like a jazz rock tune, but comes from a piano improvisation. Yeah. It's, yeah. Kind of, it's really, really amazing. There's one uh, influence, um, not maybe on Platinum, but but on Guilty, I, I, in Incantations, <clears throat> which I thought was interesting looking looking back, and I didn't notice this for many years. I just now, well, because I was spending so much time with it, um, the the main melody of the, the op- of the opening section of of incantations, which returns in guilty at yeah. the beginning. Da, 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 da. This is actually the the, the theme of uh, Trans Europa Express by Kraftwerk. Yes, yes. So um, this has never. I don't think it's ever been mentioned. I, I always thought, wow, this is really familiar, but. Um, but yes, it's it's. But it's it's very not. It's inverted. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's it's fourth in uh, Kraftwerk, I think, and it's it's like fifth to the fourth, and so it's very it's very similar. Here, yes. the funny thing it's is, this could be a coincidence because we're not talking about something which they invented. It's really like you. There is something. This is this is basic, mm-hmm. but the piece conflict on on um, QE mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. reuses uh, come goes back to that, but the beat. Underneath that, actually, it makes the sound of a, um, uh, a train um, rolling. And so it, there's a, I don't think there's a very clear reference <laughs> to Trans Europa Express. Uh, yeah, but but do you, you hear that 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 fourth movement there exactly? You're absolutely right, and so, I think all of this is related. And fact. of course, um, then after after Platinum, there comes the drum machine, the the vocoder, um, yeah. and so on. I don't know if it's an explicit reference, but I think he's clearly he's he's listening to a lot. I think that is the interesting thing. He's he's listening, listening, listening. There's so many ideas, um, you know. Yeah, like the listening aspect. I think that's um, also like from the Phil Beer thing that I heard. Uh, Phil Beer said that Mike was a big fan of these flat speakers, which were I think can't remember what they're called, mm-hmm. quads I think. Um, like flat speakers that had a really amazing resolution, which was like in the 70s, like the high, most hi-fi thing you could get. Yeah. And that they actually on the tour, on the exposed tour, they tried to use those because mm-hmm. Mike was used to listening to those speakers, mm-hmm. to classical music. That's what Phil Beer said. Sure. Interesting yeah. to see that like the listening aspect or the hi- the home hi-fi yeah. say, was something that kind of was present for Mike. So I'm kind of like... Uh, Totally with you that maybe he was just really, really soaking up um, music from different cultures, and I mean, like obviously, I like hear already, yeah. like you know, with with Omadon, like he was already there, as like some people call it, like the first world music album. Yeah. Again, which doesn't make sense, but you know what I mean. And 
and so like yeah you're right i mean there's just a lot of uh, there are a lot of influences there and i think in order to realize this this maybe half-baked vision that he might have had i think it probably was only half-baked but he had a like a concept yep. use the engineers that um that philip glass used at the time mm -hmm. right work with those guys go to um what was it? i don't know was it electric lady land yeah yeah right like go to electric go, lady electric lady so you know like is it is it those <clears throat> you know it's like kind of like choose the people that you work with yeah. um and then um then work with that and see what comes out of it I think it's, um, we often think about the, the transition from the 70s to the 80s as a sort of a fin de siècle and a sort of a, like this 1st of January 1980 um, it starts a new um, era. And there is so much for that because Klaus Schulze, 19, um, he, he records this monumental live album um, called Live, um, mm. which is him and a drummer and essentially classic 70s analog Recording then Digit, the first album in 1980, is all digital, mm. all digital. Mm. And then Tangerine Wien goes from Force Majeure, which is really a progressive rock setup still. Where, and they were touring arenas. They were never as big as, as that again. Mm -hmm. And then the first album of the 1980s is Tangram, um, composed of much shorter episodes. Mm -hmm. um, all, and again, more digital, more mel melodic. Yes, goes from Tomata to Drama with vocoders, Trevor Horn, mm -hmm. um, supposedly uh, who invented the 80s. Um, even Kraftwerk, Dimensch Maschine, for all of its futuristicness, is actually a 70s album. Mm -hmm. and, and Computer World in 1981 is, so there's a lot of it to be said. And, and then OMD released their first album in 1980, Depeche Mode in 1981. Yeah. But I think this is really a classic case of, like, you're looking at history, um, like, you were, we weren't there. And I think in reality, the 70s continue through in the, through the 80s. And I think, um, you know, Mike, he, he was dissatisfied with punk and what's happening there. And um, I think that this is a way of, of taking the music he loves and continuing it um, into for a long time. And I think that's fantastic. I, um, again, like many of the stuff that Kraftwerk did, the, the, like the, the visionary stuff was done in the 70s. And it's like they were anticipating something which would come later, but, they, but it's still the 70s. Yes. Yes. And you know, it's um, visionary is such a strange word in yeah. a way, because like, obviously, when you do it, you basically, it's never, it's never visionary, because it's always in the now, mm -hmm. like you're, you're like deciding now to use that sound, yeah. or to record it in that way, or whatever. So um, the, you know, like you're saying, like the 70s continued, it's very true. I think they continued through to the end of 82. Mm -hmm. And in 83 is when like the big change happened in how records sounded. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's still a big change even between like 78 and 80 and 80 like mm -hmm. those. But I think really we were fully in the 80s in 83. Okay. Um, and obviously, like, I don't know when, like, for example, stuff like um, Take On Me, Aha, or something like that was released mm -hmm. or... Uh, uh, Tears for Fears, like 84, 85 or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when they they had the very big hits. Yeah. So I think that's when like music, the music had changed a lot. The technology had changed a lot, but everything that goes went up to like the end of 82, mm -hmm. approximately. That was 
still very much the foot in the 70s. And, and this is interesting, like platinum in a way is kind of like, and I, I, I'm saying it, more old-fashioned than incantations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's more like, because with incantations, there was like just this, this idea to do something unique or whatever, like, I don't, I don't care, right? Or I don't know, I'm not, I don't know where I'm pulling my references from. But here, uh, with Platinum, it was more like, okay, I choose that studio because I choose those musicians because they, you know, uh, Rick Ladd played with Mahavishnu Orchestra, or I don't know, like, he must have chosen people. Like, yeah, that's true. You know? And even um, the American version of um, Platinum Airborne yeah. is a double album with um, with live performances, right? And so, yes. So that is a very seventies idea, I think. The uh, the, the combination, like Pink Floyd did this. Um, you often have the, the, the live section and the and the studio version. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's I I, I haven't listened to those uh, in a long time, but I think even like Incantation is a mix of the studio version hmm. and and the uh live version it's very interesting do very you i mean this is maybe goes to the heart of um of it but but i'm really curious about two things because it maybe it, it goes into the direction we're talking about so one do you prefer airborne to platinum where they change out guilt they swap out guilty for woodhenge hmm. um and and why did you why do you think that the the deluxe edition um inspired you to listen to it so much more because there, I suppose there's something in there that <clears throat> made you revisit it. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. It was just that it clicked with me again. So, okay. I mean, I always loved it, but, um, it was just fascinating to hear it with the, with a different master, I think. Okay. I don't know. It's just to me, like, it's such a, like people would say incoherent album because it's, but it's not, I think it's not at all. It's colorful. But, it's colorful, but also, and this is what's beautiful about the, the cover is genius. Yes. Right? Like the um, the butterfly on a whatever, it's like mercury, right? A drop of mercury or something. And yeah. that's what it looks like. In the moonlight. Yes. So, yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's just genius. It's just so kind of like makes, it always also makes the music have that color somehow for yeah. me. Like me too. Like with in particular with this album, like it's really um, uh, kind of like a piece of art. The second side more than the first, maybe even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and like the remember like the um, the um, inner sleeve had a great photograph of him, of his face, like close up of his face. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen that with a, like kind of a little bit of a stubble and like. Don't didn't they use that for the um, the new? Additional, I think they did. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that. But it's just such a uh, like, and they use some sort of two tone printing with blue and silver mm -hmm. or something. It looks looks amazing. Um, and yeah, it's sort of like a, a very much a, a, a piece from the t of the time. Also, and I mentioned that before, uh, uh, Punkadiddle. I think is the first time that there was a use of the drum loop, mm -hmm. like a. You know, not a, not a digitally sampled, but a, uh, an actual drum loop. Um, and I think that track was, I, Tom Newman was also involved in this album. Yeah, he's, he's mentioned in the credits. Yes. So maybe Woodhenge and, and I think yeah. Punkadiddle. 
it's it's kind of it's interesting like yeah I, by the way i did the, the cover i um i think it's very easy to say it doesn't fit because it's um so moody and the music is uh, upbeat and um mm-hmm. well it does have different moods but it's not exactly sort of melancholic but i think the, the thing is the butterfly is a beautiful um metaphor for the album um because the butterfly is also airborne and it's i think it's a very subtle and much more subtle reference than um with the american type, um, cover and i think it's um the butterfly is, is, is like um, playful. It's really fragile. It doesn't live for long. It's fragile, but it um, has an incredible will. And I think what it also has is this, um, this trust. Even though it is so fragile, a butterfly is not afraid. Like every insect, you will, as soon as it senses motion coming towards it, it will, it will disappear. But the butterfly will gladly sit on your shoulder. Uh, on a human's shoulder and 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 go with spend time with you you know it's a yeah amazing but you know like it goes even further than the symbolism here i think it's uh it's amazing so basically the butterfly gets caught in a molten tubular bells mm. in a bell that's molten which that you could that oh, you yes. can see that's that isn't that amazing i'm, I'm actually not ruling i think that that is very likely actually yeah, <laughs> yeah because it's a sort of like a a simple okay i'm going to take the tubular bells and we're going to liquefy it and we're going to yeah. you know turn it into something else and as you know the tubular bells the instrument i mean when i say tubular bells the instrument um does does not appear on the first side but it appears on the second side twice in the yeah. first track and in the last track and funnily enough like really as the climax mm-hmm. of the cover song yeah i got rhythm it's it's an amazing use of tubular bells there and of course, there's the transformation that a butterfly goes through from uh, yes, yeah, until it's a butterfly. Yes, <clears throat> yeah, I, I I I love that. I always love the cover, and I agree. It, it, to me, it has the same effect of putting me in and uh, seeing witnessing the color when when I listen to it. Um, very very effective. I think it would have experienced it very differently with the airborne cover, um, which is green. Yes, um, and, and more up, sort of. Um, it's a digital piece of it's it's uh, Ian Eames, right? I think. I don't know who did it. I, they, it's I think the guy who did the the visuals, the videos at the at the time, oh, which okay. was like a combination. Well, I think it was mostly animation, and he did like I don't, don't does it say anything there? No. But but I don't know like the the. Well, it, it would like you know you can Google it yourself yeah. you know. Like, this I, mean, is the, I think <laughs> also the last cover done by was it Trevor Trevor, uh, Trevor Key Trevor Key right yeah I think mm-hmm. it's the last cover he did for him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I I I think like you know now with all the information we have, it's a very simple, yeah, simple rich um, thing. So th- yeah. That's a, that was a great collaboration between the two. I think um, mm-hmm. because I doubt that uh, I, I, I would doubt that Mike had sort of this uh, would would have had suggested it to him explicitly. And like like the tubular bells, that I think um, that cover also like the juxtaposition of the bells with um, with the sea in the ocean. I think that really was a graphic idea. But mm-hmm. I think it's someone clearly who senses something in the music, and then translate that translates that into. The visual player. And hey, here's another thing. Um, remember that the um, original idea for like Opus One or Breakfast in Bread, Bed, or whatever it was called, Tubular Bells. Breakfast but, with Bread. Yeah, Breakfast in Bed, I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Uh, and that the cover that they, and this would be interesting to find mm-hmm. out if it was Trevor Key, Heavens Open, the cover with the, with the egg, mm-hmm. um, that that was the idea, the egg with 
blood coming out of it yeah. was the idea actually for, or original idea for the tubal belts cover and like again like we have the drop of liquid here mm. so i like <laughs> it's I mean, we're getting off the rails here a little yeah, but, bit, uh, but I think it's just funny to, <clears throat> to talk about these things um, this way somehow. You know? And of course, um, the visuals, I mean, the, the shows he was playing weren't that big on visuals, um, but I think there were sort of, um, some, some of them used, did use animation. I think there's this one where he has the Asher. Exactly, brand, that's, you know? that's Ian Eames who did those, yeah. I think. Okay, ah, I see. Yeah. Because those and, were also and also and also the shore with the with the with the surf coming going in and mm. out, um, and that is the cover of Everyone, I think. We'll have to look it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, that's uh, yeah. I've I've always thought is that because I like I love Guilty so much, and I, I I've always thought it, um, it it would have made for a great piece on the album. So I was wondering whether you have a preference um, for Yeah, no, no, I, I definitely um, love love it the way it got released. But then I have to say, I never experienced it the way it got released with uh, yeah. Sally, I'm just a gorilla on it. So you don't have and, a copy And actually, and so like when people say that it's in uh, like um, incoherent or doesn't like not release, uh, no side A and side B have nothing much to do with each other, it's absolutely wrong. Because the themes mm. of Airborne after the intro or the first section of Airborne, like those themes reappear in Sally of Just yeah. a Gorilla. And the whole song is based around those interesting yeah. uh, kind of like, again, quarter bottle harmony kind of riffs. I think it's, it's an unlucky thing. I really think there was a mis... I, I suppose, because I know there's lots of misunderstandings. I don't know anything about this, by the so way, this, so maybe you can... Yeah, I think... so. Maybe I should let me just preface this by by something that um, in an interview Mike said where he talked about he he was asked the communication with the musicians and he said it is difficult mm -hmm. um, to translate what I think to the musicians mm -hmm. so I will have to tell them think of it like a work song and then mm -hmm. they'll know what I mean mm -hmm. but these are some of the greatest musicians of the of the era mm -hmm. so clearly there's an issue with communication if, if like if if it's an issue with them. It has to be difficult. And I think the story is that, that that Branson probably didn't even hear the music. He just read the lyrics of Sally and said, this is no way this is going to be on the album. And he, um, whatever he communicated or said, he, he, he said, this, I don't want this on the album. Mm -hmm. And then effectively Sally was removed and replaced within one, into Wonderland, which is, there are elements of Sally in, in that song. So it's, I think he could have probably just um, resolved this by by recording new new lyrics. Yeah, but that doesn't make any sense with that song. Don't because know. It is, I, mean, I I don't think so because the song is that was it's like this whimsical love song, which probably Sally here is Sally Cooper, which was his second wife. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, or third. Uh, yes, yeah, counting yeah, the one six week marriage. Or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, but but. Um, she was the the woman that he had his first three children yeah. with. Okay, and so it's kind of like I I I to me it's a very moving piece of music. It's clearly kind of like he, um, kind of like shows that in terms of like you say communication and relationship, he's very much sort of like a teenager or looking for it. And the lyric is 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 amazing. That, well, I'll have to disagree on this one, but I you know. This yeah, is, I mean, in the sense of kind of conveying this 
Yeah. Like the way that they are, like maybe you say they're shitty, but then they are they are kind of like that way for a reason. And probably I think the thing is it's someone opening up completely. Yes. It's uh, it's to, for it to be on an album like this. I think it's um, you have to. Well, it's I don't know. I'd, I'd have trouble opening myself up so completely to, to say something like that. I think it's very, I don't know if it's courageous. It's just um, putting it out there. It's honest. It's honest. It's completely and authentic. Hon yeah, it's honest and authentic. Yes. I'm not sure if I think it makes for great music. Just, you know, um, I can see why. But but again, he maybe he should have fought for it. Yeah. But you see, like, even this, I mean, you, you don't like the, I mean, the first four lines of these give me goosebumps. Yeah. If you, like... Isn't it good to know you only get one go? And give me a key and let me see. Try and act normally. Yeah, yeah I don't have any. I just my problem is more with the gorilla and Manila. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, but that's that's the comet the comedy part of it. You know, it's I, like it's like Don Alfonso. Yeah, and Don, Don Alfonso actually has the same kind of theme. I think the thing is, I've listened to this album so often mm -hmm. in this constellation. Mm -hmm. um, I don't even know if I'm qualified to to sensibly talk about it anymore. Um, some of the transitions I don't think are great, and, and they, but they work for me. Because I, I I can't even say is it me because I've heard them too often. Mm -hmm. Did I um, do I you know? And it's the same with this one because I don't have I haven't really ever heard the album in context with the Sally piece. Yeah, this is important to know, right? So what the the the, the intro into it what feels like an intro into into uh, intro <laughs> into uh punkadiddle yeah right yeah actually in reality is the end yeah. of sally. sally i'm just a gorilla right and it completely ties the two sides together yeah completely does like the, the, thematically the, the, the evolution that song goes through from from the beginning where the mm -hmm. voice is um goes through this telephone effect yeah um and then <clears throat> there's the beautiful guitar solo because you mentioned the beautiful yeah. um keyboard solo um mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. um into wonderland but this the guitar solo of sally is incredible and then yeah it, and that's it, that's that's mike yeah playing like it's a very very personal song also the bass guitar on that on uh i'm just a gorilla i'm almost 100 percent sure it's mike i would assume like, yes yeah you can you can hear that that tone you know but anyway, it's like the, the cool thing is like also in terms of production, um, it's sort of kind of like a ridiculous album in a way. Like mm. the sounds are like the balances are very much of the time. So like how like it's the loudest, like the softest song has the loudest kick drum. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, I Got Rhythm has that yeah. super loud kick drum. And it's it's really, but it's really cool and, and gels in an amazing way to me like these sounds and it's so it's it's kind of wacky um i mean he, he managed to do that quite a few times in his career to kind of like make this really odd um pastiche mm -hmm. right of of sounds um but here it's it's really uh i don't know it, to me it's a fascinating album and i i'm really happy that that is the first album where he kind of like breaks out of the the mold. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think um, I 
it's sort of an, it's an album which invites me, maybe a lot of other people as well, to um, um, kind of try and rearrange it um, because I'm there's there's definitely passages which um, don't feel I, and I'm coming coming from the live performances which are fantastic. I sometimes think the first side. I, I sometimes wish for the first side it would it would have been produced more like the live versions, mm -hmm. but. Um, but um, there is no doubt that he wanted this album to be the way it is. You know, that this, this Tubular Bells, the Tubular Bells, he's gone back to it because he was dissatisfied with certain thing, aspects about it. He re-recorded it entirely in 2003. Um, and um, he's, he's performed it live again and again. Um, and he stated that some of the things he wasn't happy with. But I think Platinum, whatever it is, this is what exactly what he wanted. I think he, he must have thought about it a lot. There's um, a German TV interview which mentions that the sound, um, so the, the um, what's it called? Um, like they, before a gig, they would um, sound, sound check, check for yeah. up to four hours. Yes, yeah. Like insane, like four hours. So yeah. I think he was sort of trying to get um, a studio um, perfection on stage. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is the same with, um, with the album. I don't think for a second that anything was up left up to uh, to chance and i think the album sounds the way it sounds and this is what he wanted and it's great hey so like it. what what is like uh, uh totally unique about this record too is that you have the um like the the musicians and i i don't i'm not exactly sure but i think it's Pierre actually who's whispering yeah like so he's talking over sections right yeah. like and 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 where you have like the male the male uh, doo-wop vocals uh mm -hmm. as the reprise of the platinum theme yeah. and and uh, they had the female doo-wop vocals in uh on into wonderland and and so this 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 idea because you were talking about live music and studio yeah. music so this idea that like if you're sitting in a jazz club listening to a band and the leader says okay let's go back to the to the head of the tune mm -hmm. or something like you hear that you can see that and it's yes. it's a little bit like um uh we spoke about that earlier uh as asmr asmr yeah. in a way that record oh i didn't think about that yes that's true it has that those elements that's very interesting because there's a like the very within the first five or six seconds there's a tiny sound in the background mm -hmm. i've always um thought this was just pure sound but there is actually people who say no he's actually there's something being said there mm -hmm. and it's um something like kid stuff okay listen to it back it and it's sort of, I can sort so of what say, i heard plan uh -huh. yeah lots of people think it's platinum i yeah, i yeah. let's say this kid stuff um <laughs> sort of because the, uh, the the chords are so simple or mm -hmm. because it's so familiar um I've, I've always thought it was sort of a sound, just that's like a simple sound effect. Um, but it does mean that there's um, up to the, like, to the granular level, it's sort of, um, the, the, it's suffused with meaning um, on a different level, like um, not just thematic, but also sonic. No, I, I agree. Like there, there are really like interesting details that like three come to mind for me. So first of all is the transition from Charleston mm -hmm. to uh, North Star, which goes, which is a um, actually a bass synth note, right? Which is kind of like the bass synth note leading yep. into is is sort of uh, um, it's an inver inversion basically of the of the of the chord that's happening at the time. It's very unusual for Mike, 
but in a way like the way it works is like this this step into this new world because you could say okay it's just copy and paste not copy and paste but like splicing of different recordings which it is but it that the, you can see that there is there is like still very much of a concept of how these four parts on side one kind of like belong to each and work with each other and um and then the last note of north star which is not a chord tone like I mean, this is this super nerdy stuff, but yeah. anyway, like you know, you have that that synth flute uh, hanging over at the end mm -hmm. with a, with a note that's not a chord tone. Kind of like cool for to to you know say, okay, we're going to continue. This is not over, right? Yeah. Like we haven't come to an end. And then, and this is maybe like one of the uh, details that really speaks for your theory uh, here, is that. At the end of uh, Into Wonderland, he gets that endless sustain, mm -hmm. uh, a sustained note. I haven't, I haven't ever checked. I would say it's maybe 20, 30 seconds long, just that one held note, and it ends on that, on that, on that major tonality, right? That song is a major, mm -hmm. is in major, and so it's held that long, and then he slides the finger down on his fretted guitar, mm -hmm. right, and to a like just to kind of like end this piece so it's a very 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 definite ending of the song it's not a fade out or anything but it's just that one last note that he holds for mm -hmm. many seconds then he slides down and at that moment everything kind of like kind of like um uh, goes I mean, i'm just saying it because like goes minor hmm. it kind of like goes like for the the last the last moment of the album it goes from that bright major note into something darker mm -hmm. and just by that little slide at the end and it's it's always left it, it was always so fascinating to me like a like how do you get a an endlessly sustained note mm. right and then you could say okay maybe it's technically it's done with it with tape loop or something yeah. right but then you realize no it's actually played because he plays the end of the note and uh, yeah, so the attention to detail, like you say, like it's very, um, he really knew what he wanted to do. And and I, I, may, I, may, I know that there are people out there that are crazy about finding symbolism in things and, and also in Mike's music, um, but, uh, or and artwork for that matter. But um, here it really makes sense. Yeah, like you're absolutely right. Like if you, especially if you compare it to what comes after. Q2. With Q2, it seems much more um, lighter, you know, in a way. Like the music and the approach, and like it's it doesn't seem it still it's still um, conceptual, but mm -hmm. it's not it's not that um, it's not not that inter interrelated anymore. Yes, as it is on this record. Even though. Well, well, we'll talk about that next time because I, I, um, Kiwi 2, I think, for me, is one of the uh, underappreciated albums. I, love, I absolutely love that and album, I think too. I, yeah, yes. I adore that one. Yes. And, um, yes. I think um, you said um, you know a bit about the input of the musicians. Um, I would be curious because there's... Um, it would seem to me that, that the musicians play like a huge role alone in the fact if you compare the live performances and you have different drummers, for example. Yeah, um, like someone like Simon Phillips plays it very differently than um, you have different. Like I actually love what he does, but it's very, very different. It's very different. Yeah, I would. I, I mean, like the um, '84 version is really for me is not um, 
like the 84 tour discovery tour was very different because they used a sequencer like like a backing track you could say which was the fairlight mm -hmm. computer and so the whole thing was very different you had those like what we would now call 8-bit sounds yeah. <laughs> maybe they were 12-bit i don't know but anyway it was kind of like uh, not um and, and that that kind of like also influenced how Simon Phillips was playing. So Simon Phillips is, I think, in a way, an interesting name to mention here because he's sort of the drummer who, for me, even though he was very popular and started playing in the seventies, um, he was very young mm -hmm. um, in the seventies, um, but it was very successful already. Um, he sort of, for me, is the sound of a modern drummer. Mm. where Pierre Merlin, for example, is sort of like the, the, has the sound of the timeless drummer. I'm sorry, Simon, like, just like here. So I love Simon Phillips drumming, but Simon's Philip, Simon Phillips drumming sounded futuristic, even in the 70s, mm. and then especially in the 80s. And of course, uh, Moulin was also a composer himself, which is also very 70s, and, and a percussionist, and a percussionist yeah. playing melodic instruments, yeah. right? So, so it's very, very different. And yeah, I agree. Um, so the input, the input of the musicians, uh, well, we have to kind of like talk about, yeah, the live performance that those were after the fact, they came after the, the recording of the album, right? So what, but what we have on the deluxe edition is uh, the studio, one of the studio sessions for the title track. And actually, it, you can see that it's still in uh, embryonic state because um, the, the first part of it doesn't have the the guitar melody yet. It doesn't have the lead part yet. Mm -hmm. so it has uh, like a, a female choir part as the lead part. So it's again like more connected with incantations there yeah. than it you know than it actually turned out to be in the end. Um, and um, and some of the keyboard some of the keyboard parts or some of the chords actually the so the highest the highest note or the high point of that melody of the second half of Platinum. Um, he didn't have it figured out yet. I already mentioned that in some other yeah. podcasts already. He hadn't figured it out. And so the, the keyboard and the guitar, they have like a dissonant, which maybe he intended originally to do it in that way. But then he actually found a clever harmonic solution for that in the final, in the final recording. Um, and I, and I, I love this, these kind of details. And so it's quite possible that this, that I don't, I'm just saying this, I'm just saying, in a, you know, in parallel world, maybe Mike showed the part to the keyboard player, and then the keyboard player, um, keyboard player fixed it. It's possible, mm -hmm. and this is this is sort of like uh, the influence that you would wish a great um, a collaborator, a great session musician has, that they can maybe find a solution to a compositional problem. Let's say that. If they are open and nice, they just solve it. You know, it's not that they say, "Oh, you're a bad composer because you haven't figured everything out in utmost detail," right? So, and yeah. and, and I feel that on that level, um, he started working with people at that time. Uh, but I'm obviously I don't know uh, in, to what de what degree that was relevant in the recording of this particular album. I think like the next album, Q2, working with David Henschel handling all the synth and stuff might have been very different there a lot of solutions mm -hmm. may have come from david henschel already but here with this album it's um it's not clear what the interaction uh with studio musicians really was yeah. 
And yeah, maybe because we haven't said that, you mentioned Guilty, you know, mm -hmm. Guilty being the part of the Airborne release. Um, but Guilty was recorded before this and set, set sort of like the, um, um, the conceptual approach and also because yeah. it was recorded in New York, uh, that's when Mike started meeting those people. Yeah, and it's um, it would have been for me because, um, really fascinating to get an album which had more of that influence in it. But it's um, it has very this New York sound. I mean, it's um, there's a Donna Summers "I Feel Love," almost the same tempo, almost the same BPM, mm -hmm. um, sort of both relying on the, se the sequencer uh, line. Mm -hmm. um, that would have been a different path. This path not pursued. I, I think it's probably for the better in the end. But I think it, it, it it's very uh, it it does make for a good fit. I've sometimes sort of dreamed up um, a B side, which would have like if you could. Um, this goes maybe into I think to, to what I see in the album also. The B side you could, for example, imagine something like um, guilty, um, going into. Um, what did I have here? Like Guilty, Punkadiddle, um, and then you could also use the ambient guitar section, which he played on the um, Exposed Tour. Mm -hmm. And that would have been also made for a sort of a suite. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but I don't, I don't think that he tried to do any, anything like that, really. No. It, and especially, as you say, like the, maybe the, the, the main point here is that uh, Guilty had, as you say, had the sequence apart. Right. Yeah. And platinum doesn't have any any yeah. sequence part. Even though the bass, for example, on the on the Charleston, it sort of feels like, but but it's played. They, yeah, they must I mean, have... that's 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 electric bass, right? There is no and you and and I mean and we haven't even mentioned this like this. We're we're really good that we're giving ourselves time to come to all these things. So there's a brass section. Yeah. On this album, and there's only two other instances of brass on Mike's. Uh, albums, which is actually on QE2. You, there's there's a brass section, and uh, on Earth Moving. I was going to say five miles out there with brass on uh, Taurus, um, the Taurus piece, but maybe that was no. a paperback keyboard. I yes, yeah, 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 yeah. That wasn't real brass. Okay. Yes, but yeah, it's it's a really a standout album. It has an incredible uh, mood and incredible sound in a way like really very unique um again like mike has never made records where people say they sound great from mm. a technical perspective i don't i don't really get that because like for me part of the the creative process is also to do to do make something that doesn't necessarily sound great it's not really about that music is not about making a great sound uh it doesn't have to be smooth it doesn't have to you know it can have uh it can be a little bit awkward or heavy-handed sometimes, and I think that well, that's what makes things great. If it's not all kind of steely dad kind of quality, let's mm. say, right? That's <laughs> a great contrast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, having having said that, I think Mike's guitar tone on the Platinum tour in 1980 with the ten-piece band. Um, it's, it's that's the band that also played the Napworth concert. Mm -hmm. That was like his greatest tone he ever had. I mean, in a life situation, incredible, really. Uh, I mean, any guitarist who's listening to this and doesn't know about Mike Oldfield, really, like the guitar, the tone is just absolutely incredible around that time. Mm 
Um, it was it was great on on the um, exposed tour already, but then like this next step on the platinum tour, like the most incredible guitar tone. And on the in the Napworth show, which is like a pretty powerful raw kind of good recording, but but kind of uh, I think the circumstances like playing outdoors and like makes it makes it even has have has even more texture yeah. that recording and there the the guitar tone is just absolutely like a like a slap in the face mm. uh emotionally and and that's that's sort of like what what certainly like the title track platinum the lead part that is something that you really if in order for it to sound right you also have to use his technique to play it mm. I mean, playing it with a pick or something like it just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah there's um, very like if you watch the videos, there's very long stretches where he has the pick between his teeth. Yes. Very yeah. long. Yeah. And I mean, like what I love about that that time of his career also is where he actually plays again like a rhythm guitar. So um, this goes to the 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 version of tubular bells unexposed on that tour they mm -hmm. played the, so the finale the beginning of the finale it's just a guitar trio and it's the the um, Phil Beer and Nico Ramston playing the famous riff the bass riff but high up on guitar mm -hmm. and Mike is strumming just chords in a, a rhythm guitar part and it's so incredibly tight and so emotional and melodic and and the three guitars they sound like a unit it's it's incredible and then there is on the uh, complete, which was yes. a was a sampler uh, co compilation album from '85, I think. Yeah. Um, there is uh, a live version of North Star of Platinum and also of North Star of the last, where there's about a minute of Mike just playing those three chords from North Star, just alone on his guitar, in the rhythm guitar style, and where you can hear like. This, I mean, it gives me goosebumps and it's just so beautiful because like the dynamics of the guitar, how he brings out the different harmonics of the notes, how he kind of like emphasizes and accents those notes to bring out the melody in like simple three note chords um, and the tightness of it yeah. and everything like this is just so wonderful. And that's that's where he's playing with the pick, right? Mm. And so he does that there too. This was the time where he was, um, like you say, had the pick between the his lips yeah. or you know like in his hand and and sort of like um he doesn't do the hybrid picking which is the people do nowadays right like mm. with fingers and pick and stuff like that but anyway um yeah yeah i think um sort of in, it's interesting you mentioned that uh, the uh, he said something about um the recording quality or the sound quality of his albums mm -hmm. i um i think it sounds good um, definitely. Um, I've never, let's put it this way, I've never ever listened to one of his albums and thought um, this doesn't, this, the sound is, a, is an issue. I do think the mixing of Platinum, at least the, like for example the, the finale, I don't, something about it has always bothered me and when you, when I listen to the live version I can see what it is and I think, for example, if you take North Star, the, the, when the choir comes in, that's one of yeah. the highlight moments of that piece, yeah. but then the rest of the band join in with, mm -hmm. with the guitar and then the choir goes back. Mm -hmm. So it's a very balanced sound. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I think it's very balanced and clean, but I think this piece is an emotional, it, um, 
it builds up to something more suspenseful, I think. And in the live versions, everything like there's, there's every everything is at the same time. The vocals come in, like there's a mm-hmm. choir or a vocal section. Um, the instruments come in. There's sometimes there's more bass oomph mm-hmm. coming also from from underneath with some synths. Mm-hmm. And I just think. I, I just think that's the way he really wanted it to sound like, but some, for some reason it wasn't done in the mix. Yes, it's possible. I mean, the, the bass synth is clearly there yeah, in, the, in yeah. the studio version. Like I said, it's always the, the pickup note into the section is the bass yeah. synth. Um, I agree. And I mean, it's kind of like a, a, a wacky choice even like to have the congas and like uh, like the rhythm. Santana, the, the, sometimes it's some, yeah, sometimes yeah. in Santana. Yeah, territory. but if you think of it, I think that like the beginning of North Star on the album yeah. is some of the one of the coolest sounding sections of music ever. Just the way that he plays those rhythm guitars and layers those rhythm guitars with just the kick drum. Right, it's just so incredibly cool, and that's like that. It that's the sound that draws you in, and and then like he has a lot of uh, like double speed stuff on that, mm-hmm. like the 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 mandolins, uh, yeah. the background and stuff, which sound almost like a synth there. So I not, um, but I do recommend the um, that he did a sort of like a remix of North Star on the deluxe edition, yeah. which is kind of like also a wacky rearrangement of the chords sometimes, which is. I, I, at first I didn't like but I think it's kind of like done very in a very cool and free and open and open-hearted way um, but there are the, the mix is different and things uh, sound drier yeah and it's kind of a funny thing to hear and then there's also on the album tubular beats which mm-hmm. has a north a version of north uh, like a techno version of north down it's not really a techno like a dance version which brings out the 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 the, the the strum funky chordal guitar that is in the original version on the album, but it's too quiet. You don't hear it that well. Yeah. And there, you know, like you can hear this element really brought to the fore. And it's, um, yeah. I think generally the, the thing is with Platinum is he mentioned, that's, that's one of the few things he actually does mention about the recording in the book is that he was proud when he was working in the studio with all these established engineers, mm-hmm. he was proud that they respected him as a producer sort of produce, mm. producer artist mm-hmm. um, that he was able to that he knew how the machines worked and what they could do that he could actually do lots of the things himself and I think platinum is really um, a studio creation even though it came in a time when he was touring and playing live and, and, and there was so much coming from the live experience it's really a studio creation mm-hmm. and um, the um, transitions between the pieces um, are very different on the studio version as they were live. Yes. And, um, and this is just a matter of personal preference. I just like the live transitions just a little bit better, yeah. even though I have nothing against um, radical transitions. I love music from the balcony, which probably has the most jarring... But I know what you mean. In the case of Platinum, it's different performances, different productions, different yeah. splice together. Um, you know, like I just remembered that I did uh, make a podcast with Hansford Rowe, uh, who is credited as a bass player on, on Platinum. I don't know which part he played there, uh, but he was certainly the bass player in the in the '79 and uh, mm-hmm. in, in the 1980 band, '79 and '80 band, and um, and so he and this is this is I, this is kind of like fascinating to me also because you just said that Mike was happy that he was being respected or mm-hmm. expect, uh, accepted 
Um, so Hansford Rowe said to me that they, at the time, the musicians that worked with them, really had no idea what they were doing there in terms of, um, uh -huh. let's say, cultural importance mm -hmm. or like what kind of emotional wave that music would create. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, we are fanboys, so for us, obviously, it's important. But like he as a musician, he kind of like now, like 45 years later, 40 years later, he said to me, Marcus, we simply had no idea, and I wish I had been more present hmm. and soaked it up more. And so, hmm. you know, because that was just unbelievable and like unre like unrepeated. Like those those tours, that kind of band, that kind of sound. Um, it was was a once in a lifetime thing, and a lot of people there. And yes. like Hansford said, like a big part of that was drugs. That drugs made that um, difficult. Right. Um, but anyway, I think also without without the drugs, it's been it's it's difficult like in the here and now to get a sense of the importance. Importance is a strange word, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Right. The, like the wave that you're sending out. You sometimes you just have no idea. I think um, <clears throat> I I saw some. I, I mentioned jazz rock and how this is not jazz rock, but I, the, the, when you watch some of the Miles Davis performances. From, uh, from his electric era, sort of pieces bleed into each other and um, mm -hmm. it's all one, he manages in the life situation to make one one thing out of so many different things and the Mike Oldfield performances have something like this too. He doesn't, he doesn't rec make, make these, like in the classical concerts where you, you clap between um, yeah. pieces. No, it's, it flows from one into the other and sometimes he will truncate something and then... Hey, interesting enough, like I think like if there's anything that compared to that, it was Frank Zappa. Mm -hmm. Interesting enough, even though you would say like musically it's like two completely different worlds, but no, there is really a big overlap. For, interestingly, um, with Pekka Pohjola also, like Pekka Pohjola, who was sort of, I think that there was a, um, I don't know if it was a friendship, but certainly a big respect mm -hmm. between Frank Zappa and Pekka Pohjola. Mm -hmm. And so there was or even like an even conne a connection into that sort of world. Yeah. Uh, When did you um, see Mike Oldfield for the first time? When in was the eighty-two. Eighty-two. So, oh. so that falls right into the middle of this um, sort of extended period of um, of touring. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I saw him in eighty-two and in, in eighty-four. In Dortmund, right? Uh, in Essen <clears throat> in eighty-two and in Dortmund in eighty-four. Mm. Yeah. And and that but that like eighty-two was already a very different thing. This is this is kind of like really uh, important yeah. to know. It wasn't the same thing. It had already evolved in a in a fascinating way. But I agree. I agree with you. Like once you put a, a group of musicians together that plays the whole of your catalog, which basically they all they kind of like did. They I mean yeah. they didn't always play all the pieces, but they had worked up versions of things like that you wouldn't you wouldn't even know, right? Um, and and sort of like the the fact that it's one group of musicians interpreting Omadon and Platinum, mm -hmm. right next to each other, yeah. right and tubular bells and ignitations, yeah, and then a bit of Fergus Ridge, right. And at that time, then came the QE2 stuff, 
and like they like a whole all these how all these things kind of like started blending and kind of creating creating i think like a, a set of um a more communal experience on a, on a human level but also on a musical level um, and then as we were saying earlier where also musical contributions started playing uh, a role more and more yeah. i mean that's certainly after platinum that started started to happen mm -hmm. i very much i'm very sure i haven't talked with him but david hanschel must have had a big influence on qe2 and then um five months out was was Dave, when once david cross was in the picture uh, not david cross uh tim cross was in the picture tim cross did um did a lot of keyboard arranging of parts mm -hmm. coming up with um with voicings and you know all of the, and, and and all these things are just a crucial crucial part of the sound and platinum really is the starting point of that and i'm not even sure if, if tip cross is on platinum i think he might maybe no, I, stupid i brought my old cd yeah yeah, yeah, yeah of course the old virgin yeah. cds do not list the musicians yeah yeah that's just yeah anyway um, but yeah. but i um yeah it's a huge list of musicians, that's for sure. Yes. Um, and they're not very often not explicitly credited for which piece they play on. And uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe because um, it was impossible afterwards to. Um, I, th I think a couple of the a few of the musicians, uh, like obviously Pierre Milan died in 2005 or something, a long time ago already. Um, and uh, I think one of the bass players on the record recently died. Um, so, like, it's about time that somebody would kind of like collect this information, actually. Yeah. And I, 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 I'm kind of like scared that it will never happen. That we're, that we're not going to know uh, what's going on. Like in the mid '80s, um, there were specifically things weren't people in the like on the singles on uh, um, on Shine and uh, Pictures in the Dark, for example. There's not a single musician other than the singers are credited. Yeah. And but uh, it's it's kind of uh, yeah we need to I mean maybe that's something we can do at some point could be yeah could be know, yeah or we find somebody who wants to collaborate on that with us yeah I wanted to ask you one question um don't know if we've reached the end but one thing I I, I I when 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 you see the live performances they made use of the Charleston for a little show um, piece where they um, when the Charleston starts. They would they would serve um, champagne um, mm -hmm. to everyone, and then they would toast the audience. And I remembered that you, um, when you were playing with Devin Townsend, there was also a cocktail bar section yes. on stage, and you'd be served cocktails, um, yes. wonderful cocktails. <laughs> um, was that uh, is that a Mike Oldfield uh, tribute, or was that completely come, did that come from somewhere else? No, that was um, I, I guess that was Devin's idea, and it was it wasn't a musical part, right? It was more more the theatrical part while while there was no music playing mm. so um yes but we we actually and this is funny but this but this is where it connects somehow we played a version of disco inferno on that tour mm -hmm. and during disco inferno uh, diego the keyboard player he started serving out drinks again so mm -hmm. it was that was more of that moment for us yeah. <laughs> yes yes yeah but like um i think this this uh, aspect of humor and kind of like lightheartedness and yeah. in performance, um, this is something that Mike somehow always tried to do somehow, like sometimes more successful, sometimes less successful. But, you know, it, I mean, 
I mean, like I said, like when Hansford Rowe said that he had no idea how serious it was in a way, mm -hmm. right? And then now seeing like what kind of struggle, struggle, I mean, not struggle, but like decision, you know, as the artist you have to make, okay, mm -hmm. how, how, how serious am I about presenting my music? Yes, so four hours of sound check, like the most expensive speakers in the world, you know, buy 16 of them because you're doing a quadraphonic show, like like crazy stuff, right? Like, and then like, and how much humor is it? And then obviously going back to Tubular Bell. So at the end, you have the Sailor's Hornpipe and in the live shows with uh, in the Exposed tour, that was that moment, yeah. right? And also Guilty as sort of like a disco celebration. And and they had this idea with a with a we didn't mention that last time actually when we talked about incantations that for the live shows they had like these paper plants yeah and people were throwing paper plants which is yeah. also a great idea you know um, yeah but anyway like it's it's really uh, maybe yeah in a way platinum is also like a humoristic mm -hmm. I mean obviously punkadiddle that was a I mean I don't find it that um... Funny, but, but no, it's, it's not supposed to be a take on punk. And you know, like and I told you already at, at some point earlier in this series that actually I have I have a performance of Punkadiddle, Punkadiddle on acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. And it really does sound like the origin of the piece is the acoustic guitar piece and not the other way around. Yeah. I mean, I <clears throat> that is actually a great piece and it's it's made to sound garish, but it's uh, it's actually a beautiful piece. Yeah. Um, yeah yeah and the the idea with the sample like the mm -hmm. the, the whatever that is the audience cheering yeah. or yeah. it's just amazing it's yeah, such, that is so tongue-in-cheek and yeah. uh, also uh, another um you know the, the the drum beat is sampled on that well sampled looped on the record and then you have the samples that the, they are throwing in on top i think it's yeah. so cool and like the um another association i had and that also my my mother and I, I had back in the day mm. listening to the piece is that it was sort of like the um, already kind of like uh, foreshadowing his love with Spain. Mm. So because it has that sort of like that arena vibe of like, mm. let's say like not the nice thing, like the bullfighting or something. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it could be sort of like a tune, like a, um, a hymn like tune played at a, at a sports event. Mm with yeah. people cheering right yeah, yeah yeah absolutely and that's what what can happen to to not him but really on the track um portsmouth is mm -hmm. sort of like used in in football right yeah. in english football like as a heaven mind like these things <laughs> but anyway yeah absolutely there's a, some of the best interviews from that time also for Spanish TV. It's interesting that he, uh, yeah. he connects and they connect with him in a completely different way. When you listen to the BBC interviews, it's so different and he's yeah. so much more relaxed. <clears throat> well, I, I don't know if he's, if he's really relaxed, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's wonderful. Like, um, like you, can, you can see how he, like the first response always like in his face is... Uh, what kind of what stupid question is that and then like yeah. he 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 meets he meets that with with um with humbleness then you know and and by giving a an honest and and um, um how should i say this like 
really really from the heart like mm. trying to connect with the person and trying to explain things and i mean this this is another thing where you can see that i still believe that one thing that kind of if you even want to say that that kind of like happened to him is that he didn't really at least at a certain point at his time didn't have a lot of people anymore that he could talk with on his level mm-hmm. and i'm not not saying that as in uh high or low or whatever just in in terms of like where he was mm-hmm. with his understanding of music and maybe also of the world seems to be yes you know and having gone through that that therapeutic process uh, already which is a it's a big thing like as you say to actually um face your demons and that a lot of people never go there mm-hmm. and it could be it could be like my my friend nick Birch says to me sometimes it's lonely at the top mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway it's not about being at the top but like sometimes you get into a situation where you're just um lonely because of the work you've done yeah and it's funny like because this platinum already feels like a, a, an attempt to break out of that to open up to yes, have, possibly have yeah. uh, more people connect and different like a like a more complex uh, surface structure to the work so that more more people can connect with it i'm just i'm just really glad it was made it got made because um i think the the technological changes which were coming and some of which are being applied on this album and then more and more in the early 80s albums he's releasing um they were as much uh, um um making the process easier as they were making it hard for some. Mm-hmm. And um, for example, Kraftwerk, um, I read a lot about them and, and why thought about why Electric Cafe was the album which essentially broke them. Mm-hmm. And I think it broke them because there was the, the sound, sound was changing, the sound people were looking for. And also coming, they were drawn to New York and the sounds of the clubs <clears throat> and um, they wanted to get that sound when they came back. Um, actually, um, there's um, a lot about Hütter coming back and then hearing um, that was then New Order from, from coming from England mm-hmm. and, and um, Blue Monday. And um, he wanted that sound, but he couldn't get it for the album. And I think there's a reason for it because I think the music wasn't made for that sound. But I think he was looking for it and it broke the band. And Kraftwerk have since essentially become rearrangers like arrangers and no longer musicians and um, yes. they were thinking about it too much and I'm this album it, if you like if he had played um, with this with this material for a year live it would have been different mm. who knows it would have maybe someone would have liked it more someone would have liked it less but it's it's so this is so I think the thing is it got made and it the fact that it got made allowed him to then <clears throat> go down this road and expand into the next yeah. batch of albums. I, I think the, the really the coolness factor of Mike Oldfield's work is really in the in the in the fact that they are such products of their not of their time as in necessarily the year but in the process of his of his life and as I said like and that's why we have the the, the title of the autobiography changely mm-hmm. like how they are always different but still very much have you know his artistic signature Mm -hmm. and that's why i think 
like elaborating an idea uh, or sitting on an idea for a long time and changing it then mm -hmm. i think is not what he what he really was supposed to be doing he was just supposed to do the things he was doing at the time yeah. um i know that there are there are moments where like like on Amarok, he brings back something that initially was an idea that may already have been have been used on tubular bells but di didn't get used and you know so yes but then those lifted ideas that they they were not they were not changed over the decades it's not that they had to um it's not that they had to grow into something else yeah. they are they're already there they're complete and they are accepted i think that's what it is like also like i think he always was accepting of what was happening of what he was mm -hmm. doing rather than i don't know if it like like what he was saying about that if he was like doubting his decisions it's possible like it's like so many musicians mm -hmm. are doubtful about what they do but to me it sounds as if like he just managed to do exactly what was possible right yep. and that and that's that's really also that that's the the secret be, behind being a, a successful creative person yeah. hey is this the longest how incredibly crazy is that right like the maybe the the shortest album in terms of musical mm -hmm. ideas as people would say uh, my point of musical ideas, but yeah, it's, it's definitely <laughs> yeah. a lot shorter than incantations. And but um, I think it's fitting. Um, <laughs> as I said, I, I I've lived with this album, um, and uh, I will continue to listen to it. I know this. This um, there's always a reason to to listen to it. It's it's just great. It's just great. It's it's like uh, also like this album is like gradient. Right, it goes from one color mm. to the other across the two sides. So it's not it's not an album that tries to uh, create a loop, like yeah. Incantations did the mm. loop. But here, no, it starts on, like I said, starts with A, ends with B, right? And it doesn't doesn't show you any direction into the future. That's true. And um, actually, this could, I mean, I had something in, when you said that reminds me, I wanted to say, I don't know if, if we want to put it <clears throat> at the end of this one, but I think one of the big things which is different for this one is that before Platinum, really, um, there is no difference between the record and the composition. Mm -hmm. So I think, although Mike has always emphasized, I, he doesn't see himself as a classical composer. He doesn't, um, he doesn't want to be in that tradition or lineage. Mm -hmm. He is. I mean, the um, Tubular Bells is a composition and it, uh, it's in two parts and um, it, one part is on the first record side and the other on the B side. Mm. I mean, f for all it's worth, if, if there had been vinyl LPs in the age of Beethoven, um, you know, <laughs> maybe so he would have released his new album would have been his Ninth Symphony. Yeah. Um, but, but it changes with Platinum. Mm -hmm. With Platinum, I think what, what, what we're now seeing is, is our albums. Before, I don't see Tubular Bells, Hergus Ridge, I don't, even though, of course, we use the word, mm -hmm. I think there is, um, these, these are pieces, they're compositions. And they, um, the fact that they haven't been performed by orchestras worldwide is just a like, bad comment on the orchestra system. Mm -hmm. um, but, mm -hmm. but it hasn't, hasn't happened yet. But um, mm -hmm. with Platinum starts his, um, the era in his career where he's thinking about albums. And um, so there's a different logic behind them. 
Mm-hmm. And and what maybe makes Platinum so fascinating is that it um, maybe QE2 by the way also um, because that is more disjointed. But it's I also like I think it it is more connected than many people think. I think there is an mm-hmm. it could have been performed as a series like a suite. Yeah. And, and Platinum also could be conceived of as they, didn't he play? Um, isn't there reference to Bach somewhere? Um, I know. That's on QE2. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So and Bach, of course, did these dance suites with different um, rhythms, and and, and and so there's an element of that. Yes. Um, but we're moving into the album territory, and on, on an album, you can have one side with a long piece with recurring themes, and the other side is just pop songs. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a different something different starts because it allows for different ways of of making music, and it will definitely always disappoint some people mm-hmm. because it's the the contrasts are going to be bigger. Um, in many respects, and um, because the album format invites this, like Sgt. Pepper, um, it's it's about contrast, it's about a magic that comes because you're putting together things which maybe could otherwise not yeah. be together. But yeah. I think that's... A, that, yeah, it's that's more like the, the idea of the collection or yeah. of the, the artist as a curator of yeah. their own art. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yes. Okay, man, let's let's leave it at that, yeah. right? I mean, this was uh, much longer than expected. I mean, I, at this time, I don't think I'm going to cut out any ads <laughs> and ads and like, because I, I think this this conversation pretty much shows, uh, kind of like reflects the organic aspect of yeah. uh, of the process, right? Well, remain in the moment, <laughs> yeah, like okay. like uh, like Platinum. Okay. Bye. See you next time. <laughs>